Good morning, everybody. So today we begin a new sermon series based on Romans chapter 8, and we're calling the series Absolute Security. So here's the problem. We live in a world and a culture where the people, the institutions, the corporations, the organizations to which we look longing for security, frankly disappoint us whether that's government or the schools, sometimes, of course, marriage. We look even at times to the institutional church. And all of these things, in some ways, fail. And so it raises the question, is there any way in this world of ours in which we can experience security, let alone absolute security? Well, the answer is no. No, there is absolutely nothing in this world that was ever established to provide us with a sense of security. So does that mean we can't experience it? Well, no, we'll get there in a moment. But this word absolute, let me define it for you. I did a little Google search the other day. Absolute means that we are unquestionably, undeniably, completely, utterly, entirely, definitely secure. Well, who doesn't want to feel absolute security? We all do. Because when you and I have a well-established, well-grounded security, not based on fairy tales, not fiction, but reality, we experience safety. We feel love, we feel acceptance. And at times, rather than getting all worked up and anxious about stuff, we experience a measure of peace. And with regard to the present or even into the future, we know that we can have a solid hope and confidence that whatever is going on in our lives today, whether it's physical issues or financial pressure or problems with the kids or at school, whatever the case may be, We have hope and confidence that ultimately all of this broken stuff is going to turn out for our good. Can you imagine not experiencing absolute security? No feeling of safety, no acceptance, no sense of love, anxiety instead of peace, and an absence of hope or even confidence concerning the tough times of life. Wouldn't that be terrible? Yet the reality is, those are the kinds of emotions that control a lot of people in our world today. Maybe you. If so, I have some very good news for you. That being that God wants you to bask in the enjoyment of his love and his acceptance and confidence based upon a solid, well-grounded hope concerning the future because of your relationship to him. Romans chapter 8 just happens to be the greatest chapter in the entire Bible on this topic of absolute security. And so in the 12 weeks that we're going to be living in this chapter, my prayer is that you and I are going to develop a well-grounded, robust confidence in the promises of God that lead to our experience of overwhelming assurance concerning the present and even the future. Friends, our church is in the grip of Jesus Christ. We are secure. And if your faith is in Jesus, so are you. Now, 
Talk about security. Romans chapter 8 has absolutely everything. It begins in the opening verse with the declaration, no condemnation. And it ends in the last verse by saying, no separation. No condemnation, no separation. And between these incredible bookends, you and I are introduced to some amazing themes. And I want you to get an idea of what's before us by looking at this chart. So, for example, here's one theme, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's our theme for today, actually. And then we'll go on to consider in subsequent weeks the work of the Holy Spirit who indwells you for the purpose of transforming your life. We're going to talk about how to deal with internal struggles, with sin that is, and then it goes on to mention our being adopted as children of God. I mean, how amazing is this that you get to call God Abba, which is a term of endearment and affection. You get to call God your father, a father who's never going to disappoint you and never walk out on you. That's the kind of relationship that builds security. I mean, all of these themes, every single one of them is just dripping with this whole message of our security. It goes on to talk about the significance of suffering. We don't pay enough understanding biblically to this topic of suffering. We're going to go there, as well as the prospect of future glory, to think that this world is going to be restored. The restoration of this entire creation, Paul talks about that, as well as the final redemption of our bodies, how the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. And did you know that even the Holy Spirit is praying for you? Again, a message that underscores our security, how God causes absolutely everything to work out for the ultimate good of those who love him. And so what's God's good goal for us? Well, it's to transform us into the likeness of Christ. In fact, Paul says, nothing can stop God from bringing this to pass. And ultimately, no one, not even Satan, can successfully oppose us, bring any charge against us, condemn us, or finally separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. What amazing teaching. But you know, Romans chapter 8 has more than great teaching. It is the theology of these verses that built bedrock solid security into the life of the Apostle Paul and can do the same for you and for me. And so believers in Jesus Christ who are grounded in these themes, the themes of this chapter will enjoy greater peace. We will be motivated in response to God's incredible grace to us to live lives of worship and service, to want to connect with other believers in meaningful ways, to grow in our faith, and certainly to share the good news with those who are still far from God. And so with that as an overview, Today we come to consider how it is that we can be absolutely secure in our relationship to God. To find out how, I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's truth as recorded for us here in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of Scripture. Romans 8, beginning at verse 1, let's hear God's word. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Here ends the reading of scripture. You may be seated. So what is it that assures us of our relationship to God? Well, as we examine these verses this morning, we discover that each person of the Godhead is at work on our behalf. Please do not think of salvation as this very small, kind of a narrow, self-absorbed thing where we think, okay, yeah, Jesus died for me, but it's all up to me. My decision, I have to accept Christ, and then, of course, I have to live for him, and it's all about me. No, it isn't. Not at all. Friends, this is a Trinitarian rescue mission. The emphasis throughout this entire chapter is not on what you do, but rather on what God does, and that is what guarantees the ultimate security of every authentic Christian. It's not up to you. Ultimately, it's up to what God does in our lives. So each person of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is totally committed to your rescue. And you're getting all the way home to heaven itself. So that's why the salvation of every true believer is absolutely guaranteed. So what is it, first of all, then, as we look at this, what is it that the Father has done? God the Father. Well, here's your answer. By sending his son into the world, he's taken away our guilt. Now, let me illustrate this for you. Sunday, the 25th of April, 2010, almost 13 years ago in a couple of weeks, began like any other Sunday for me. We're about ready to start the first of a number of services at our Roseville campus. It's a Sunday I'll never forget. I just got a message just before the service was to begin. Rich, there had been a break-in at the home of Nick and Heidi Furkitz, our paid youth staff. There's been some shooting. We don't really know what's going on. Oh, my word. So we called the church to prayer for that first service. At the end of that first service, I go out into the lobby. People all over the place are weeping. What in the world's going on here? Well, they had heard something that hadn't been brought to my attention yet, that Heidi died. And this was the story, as Nick uh, mentioned things, his perspective to the authorities. He said that there had been this break-in. He got up to get a drink of water at 6 o'clock in the morning, gets back into bed, and around 6.30, he hears some rattling in the front door. Somebody's jiggling with the, with, the, with the lock system, trying to get in. He tells Heidi, his wife, call 911, get down and, and stairs and get out the back door. He follows her with a rifle. According to Nick, there had been this scuffle in the hallway by the front door. The rifle goes off, shoots Heidi in the back. She dies instantly. And the rifle goes off a second time, and he receives a wound in his leg and is now in the hospital. Church is devastated. Heidi was raised at Calvary Church, the church I was pastoring in Roseville. She was a graduate of 
Rose Valeria High School in 2003. During her years as a senior high student at that church, she met Nick. They got married two years after she graduated in 05, purchased shortly thereafter this home in St. Paul. So that was the story. It was the most incredible funeral service I've ever been part of, the largest certainly in the history of the church. Let's fast forward though this story to just two months ago, to February the 10th of this year. After a lot of work, forensic work, by the FBI and other agencies, Nick Furcus, pictured here, was charged with first-degree premeditated murder of his wife and second-degree intentional murder of killing Heidi back in 2010. So I want you to imagine the scene. The emotion in the courtroom Thursday of last week, when Nick appears before the judge, and as a result of the decision previously announced by the jury, the judge says this, you're guilty. You will spend the rest of your life in prison. I mean, can you picture that scene? Okay, there was no intruder, according to uh, the forensic evidence, and certainly the decision of the jury. Now, I share all of this with you this morning because of this point, that just as Nick Fergus was found guilty in a human court, take all of this emotion now, you and I are guilty before God's court. You are, and so am I. We deserve condemnation. And so we have these verses earlier in Romans 3. There's no one righteous, not even one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're guilty, we stand condemned. It says in Romans 3, verse 8, that God's condemnation is just. And so just like Nick Fergus, we are looking at life in prison, God's eternal prison, without the possibility of parole. And yet we come to church this morning and the key verse is announced in Romans chapter eight and verse one, there's now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And we go, how did that happen? What is this all about? I mean, this is absolutely incredible. Can it get any better than this? The first word in the original text is the word no, the negative. It means that there is no possibility ever of someone who belongs to Christ ever being condemned. Can there be a more joy-filled message than that? I don't think so, which is why Charles Wesley put it in the song that we sang earlier this morning, no condemnation now I dread, Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him my living head, clothed in righteousness divine. God the judge has made a legal announcement or declaration, no condemnation. Now to state it positively, this brings us to what is known as the doctrine of justification by faith. Say, what in the world is that about? If you and I were having a conversation and terms were used like home runs, stolen bases, sacrifice flies, what would we be talking about? All right, the world of baseball. What those terms are to the world of baseball, justification is to the law court. It's a legal term. 
all right? So in justification, God the judge declares sinners, while they are still in a sinning state, lawbreakers, to be just. Now, perhaps you can get a sense as to why this has been a challenge to some believers. Because many believers are still aware of the fact that they mess up, they screw up, they fail God, and they wonder if ultimately am I ever going to be condemned. But you see, justification does not remove sin in you. God begins to do that when we are born again or regenerated. He continues that as a process throughout this Christian life until we're called home to heaven. Then we're perfected. But in justification, God isn't doing anything in you. He's making a legal declaration about you. Now, this has some significant practical implications that I want to draw to your attention. Here's the first of three. In justification, God pardons or forgives all sin. Past sin, present sin, future sin. Sin you haven't even committed yet. He forgives or pardons Sins of what we call omission, where we omit doing the good that God calls us to do, and even sins of commission, where we commit the wrong that he says not to do. Sins in your thought life, sins of motive, your words, your actions, everything that fails to honor the law of God, as we saw in that catechism definition this morning, is sin. And God pardons all of it. Now look at this quote by one of my favorite writers, Martin Lloyd-Jones. The apostle is asserting here that if we are Christians, your sins and mine, past sins, present sins, future sins, have already been dealt with once and forever. Had you realized that? Well, had you? <laughs> Most of our troubles are due to our failure to realize the truth of this verse. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is so often understood to mean nothing more than past sins have been dealt with. Well, of course it means that. But it also means your present sins. Even more, it means that any sin you may have ever chanced to commit has already been dealt with. You will never, you cannot ever come under condemnation. This is what the apostle is saying. Nothing can ever bring the Christian again into a state of condemnation. It's all forgiven. All right, number two, since it is God who justifies, Friends, this is a declaration that no one can cancel or annul. Now let me explain what I mean. Here's Nick Furka standing before the judge. He's sentenced to a lifetime in prison. And because he was found to be guilty of uh, premeditated murder in the first degree, that automatically gets an appeal to a higher court, the Supreme Court of our state. In our judicial system, that's what we have, the right of appeal. Eventually, some case, theoretically at least, can be appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court. Well, the highest court is God's court. His court is above all the Supreme Courts of all the states or all the countries. And if the sentence comes down from God's court, you are accepted, you are justified, you are pardoned or forgiven, no condemnation, who is going to overturn that declaration? No one. So that's why Paul will argue later on in this chapter, verse 33, who can bring any charge against God's elect? Now the word charge is a legal term, isn't it? 
Who's going to bring a legal accusation against God's elect? It is God who justifies. You see, as a Christian, you need to know that you are loved. You're accepted. God is not out to get you. And even when you mess up or fail as a Christian, he's there for you to forgive as a, as a Christ follower. Okay, this is where it all begins, though, with the acknowledgement that we are justified now and forever. Third practical implication. Since it is the God against whom we have sinned who declares us to be justified, friends, let's realize we are in the realm of pure, sovereign mercy and certainly undeserved uh, kindness or grace. See, by nature, we're not righteous. In fact, my sin provokes the wrath of a holy God. And so if the God against whom I have sinned declares me not guilty, I'm in the realm of grace and undeserved mercy. So let me ask you this question this morning. Has God declared you to have right standing? I'll tell you, you think the court in St. Paul is a terrifying court? If you were to stand before a judge and the sentence would be declared guilty and you are let out to a life in prison, that doesn't even come close to the terror of having a holy, righteous God declare you to be guilty and eternally condemned. But the opposite, of course, is it's filled with incredible grace when God declares not guilty, no condemnation. Now, this leads to a problem. And the problem is simply this. How in the world is all of this even possible? And by that, I mean the following. Let's say we come to the day in which Thursday of last week, by the way, this whole story was on 2020, maybe you saw it on Friday night, two-hour program revealing all the evidence against Nick and the whole deal. But let's go back to the time of sentencing on Thursday. Various ones, family on each side got to speak. Nick even spoke, claiming innocence. So the judge is about to sentence him and he, Nick stands before the judge. And the judge says, Nick Ferkus, you've heard the evidence. This court declares you have right standing. You are free to go. We go, what? Who was that? We'd want to throw the judge in jail, right? So how does a holy, sin-hating God get to declare broken people like us, sinners, to have right legal standing in his sight? How in the world is that even possible? Well, that's where we come to the second area. What has God the Son done? Now look at these verses that are coming up. Romans chapter uh, 8 here in verses 1 to 3. And as they come up, I want you to notice the emphasis on what Jesus Christ has done. It mentions in the opening verse, you know, no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus through him, you know, we've been set free. And it goes on to say how God sent him his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So what exactly did God the Son do? Here's your answer. Jesus Christ satisfied all the justice required on our behalf. What we were powerless to do, God did in the person of his son. So everything that God the Father did, he accomplishes entirely through the Son. 
Now, verse 3 is one of the greatest statements in the entire New Testament on the doctrine of the incarnation. See, what's that about? The incarnation of God's Son. Maybe you know what chili con carne is. You know what chili con carne is? Chili with meat, right? That's chili con carne. Well, this is, this is the incarnation. It's God with meat. God con carne. God with meat and muscle and bone. God coming in the person of Christ with a human nature, human emotions, human will, human intelligence, human affections, or all of that. A divine nature throughout eternity adds something now that he never had before, a human nature. Divine nature, human nature, and the one glorious person of Christ throughout eternity. All right, what was the purpose of his coming into the world, of his being sent, to use the term in the text? Well, we're told he came to be a sin offering. So let me summarize for you what Jesus did to rescue us by describing what he did in his life as well as what he did in his death. The illustration I wanna share with you, I shared with you about a year and a half ago, so maybe you forgot it. It's not original with me. It was shared with me by a church custodian when I was like 11 years of age. And I'm gonna share it again this morning because I don't want you to forget this. I think it's a perfect illustration of the biblical truth of what Jesus did to rescue me and you, all right? So this custodian said, Rich, put out your hand. All right, that hand represents your entire life. And he takes a book like this, puts it on my hand, and he says, Rich, this is a record of everything you ever did wrong. Past sin, present sin, future sin, it's all written down here. Holy God looks down from heaven. Rich, you're in deep weeds. There's no way that he can accept you with this bad record of yours. What's gonna happen? Well, stick out your other hand. Okay, that other hand represents Jesus Christ. What God did was to take your entire record of wrongs and he transfers it to Christ, his son. And on the cross, he's punishing Jesus, as it says here, to be a sin offering, to die in our place as a sin-bearing substitute. So now, when a holy God looks down upon you from heaven, he doesn't see a bad record. But Rich, you just have a blank, blank book. And that's not good enough to get into heaven. You need a perfect record, a perfect obedience to get into heaven, something you have not and cannot render. Where is that going to come from? Gee, I don't know. All right, so he told me. This other hand representing Jesus, here's another book. This is a record of everything that Jesus ever did to honor the law of God. He came into this world, honored his parents perfectly, Throughout his life and ministry, 33 years, he always did things motivation-wise and everything else to honor the law of God. God takes the perfect record in obedience of Jesus and he credits that to you. So when a holy God looks down from heaven, there's no broken record. What's there? Perfect record. He sees you as totally perfect in his son, and on the basis of that, a just and holy God can declare sinners to be pardoned of all of their sin and have right standing in, in the court before him. Isn't that amazing? Now, the theological, 
term that defines all of this is, is sometimes called imputation. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's an accounting term, and it means to apply to one's account. So expenses, as you know, are debited, and income is credited. So Jesus gets our debit, we get his credit. What a deal. And it's all by faith. We have a great statement to this effect in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Notice these verses. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Well, what did he do with them? Well, he charged them to, to Christ. That's the first part of imputation. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. And now you have the second part, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that's the credit. All right, what are the implications of all of this? Well, there are two that I want to share this morning, critical, practical implications. Number one, our salvation depends entirely on what God the Son did for us, not on you. Friends, there's no cooperative effort here where Jesus does 50%, you do 50%, he does 99%, but you've got to do something, you've got to add your 1%. No. The only thing you get to contribute to your salvation is your sin and your brokenness. It's all based on Christ and Christ alone, plus nothing. All right, here's the second implication. What God the Son did for us is not in an impersonal act. Now, what I mean by that is this. Paul says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For you to be declared to have right standing, you have to be in Christ Jesus. That requires a faith commitment on your part to Jesus. Now, I like the way John Calvin puts this in his institutes. 27-year-old man wrote a series of additions and extras to his institutes, but this is what he wrote in the first edition. Look at this quote. We must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. Therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and to dwell within us. To know this condition of no condemnation, Christ must become yours. And the question is, has he? Has he? Friends, there's no greater need in your entire life. I mean, nothing is greater in terms of your need than to be totally assured that God the judge has declared you are not going to be condemned. And the only way for that to happen is for you to belong to Christ Jesus. So do you. Okay, so can we be assured of our relationship to God? Yes, but only because of what the Father has done in sending his Son to satisfy all that justice required on our behalf. All right, thirdly, what about the Holy Spirit? What does he do? Well, here's a short answer. This is going to be described further by the Apostle Paul in future passages we'll look at. But verse 2, or here's the answer. He has set us free from the law of God. Well, then verse 2, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So Paul sees the law here as a negative 
Previously, in chapter 7, he saw it as a positive. He said, you know, there's nothing wrong with the law of God. He said it's spiritual, it's holy. The problem is with us. And he goes on to indicate here that it's a principle that the law of God even encourages sin leading to death. How does that work? Well, let me illustrate it for you. I understand that in the city of Galveston, Texas, there's a hotel built over the water, at least in part and you have this magnificent view of the Gulf. But management was having problems. They couldn't figure out why it was that the, the glass in these rooms in the lower levels were getting cracked or even shattered. How's, what's happening? And they realized that this was all due to the fact that some employee had placed signs in all of the rooms on the Gulf side saying, no fishing allowed from the balcony. And so guests were coming in, checking into their rooms. Nobody was thinking about fishing from the balcony until they saw the sign. And the sign suggested, hey, wouldn't that be fun to fish off the balcony? So they were casting their lines, and the weights on the line were smashing the windows down below. So what do you think management did to solve the problem? Remove the signs. And as soon as they removed the signs, problem solved. In chapter 7 of Romans, Paul tells us, you know what? I would not have known anything about coveting until the law of God said, don't covet, don't have sinful desires. And as soon as I read that, I thought, well, I'd like to covet. And that's the way it is with the law of God. It suggests things that provoke sin in us. And again, there's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is within us and our fallenness. So what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, here's verse four in the modern translation. Christ condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who now do not live according to the flesh, the old sinful nature, but how? According to the spirit. God has given you an entirely new operating system. You're now functioning according to a whole new major software upgrade in the person of the Holy Spirit. And what does he do? He gives you the power, and now that you've been declared to have right standing, no condemnation, you are now motivated out of love to want to obey the law that you previously were breaking. So what are the implications here? Well, let me spell it out by means of a story involving Jesus recorded in Luke's, uh, John's Gospel, chapter 8. Here's verse 3. The teachers of the law, that is the scribes and the Pharisees, brought in a woman caught in adultery. Well, the text goes on to tell us that they were hoping to capture Jesus in a trap. How so? Well, the law of God in the Old Testament said anybody caught in adultery, male or female, was to be stoned to death. So if Jesus says, no, don't stone her, then the Jews are going to get aggravated. Why? Because their law said stone her. And if he says stone her, well, the Romans are going to get it all worked up because they did not allow the Jews to practice capital punishment. So we read in verses 6 and 7, Jesus then bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. We don't know what he wrote. Some people suggest maybe the sins of her accusers. At any rate, it says... He went on to declare, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. So her accusers leave, 
And for the first time, Jesus is now alone with this woman. Now, he could have called her by any of the names, you know, that we use to describe people of low moral standards. Hey, slut. Hey, tramp, sleaze. But what does he call her? With a term of endearment and affection and respect. Woman. No matter who you think you are or what others think of you, never forget that you are woman, created in the image of God with value and worth and respect. Woman, where are they? Has no one, what, condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, right? So let me ask you this question. How do you picture Jesus when you think of your failures? I mean, how do you think he reacts when you fail time after time and you feel all of this guilt and a sense of shame? You may feel, well, if I'm ever thrown at Jesus' feet, he's never going to accept me. Not in a million years. I've messed up too badly. Well, I want to tell you, you're dead wrong. His grace and forgiveness are not for perfect people like these legalists who wanted to trap Jesus. It's for people who struggle with sin, like this woman and like you and like me. So what Jesus now says to this woman, God says to you, neither do I condemn you. And now notice the last part of the verse, go now and leave your life of sin. That's the same idea of Romans chapter 8. If you've heard God say to you in the gospel, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You're going to be motivated out of love and gratitude to do with the second half of this verse. And John says, go now and leave your life of sin. So to summarize, the reason why there's no condemnation leading to absolute security is because the entire trinity of God is involved in rescuing you. God the Father is the judge who declares no condemnation. God the Son comes as our substitute and there's this double exchange. He gets my brokenness and sin and I get his obedience, his right legal righteousness. And then there's the power of the Holy Spirit at work applying the salvation purchased by Christ so that we are enabled out of love to long to obey the Father. May you then today by faith, every single day, hear God say to you by his spirit, absolutely, no way ever is there any condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, triune God, we thank you and rejoice for your great rescue mission and yet we often struggle with doubts and with insecurity and with guilt father during such times may we hear you say there's no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus and may we be assured of your love and our standing in christ to the point where we respond with lives of joy-filled enthusiastic worship and obedience all for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.